Almost no Australians know anything about the Aboriginal civilisation because our educators, emboldened by historians, politicians and the clergy, have refused to mention it for 230 years. Think for a moment about the extent of that fraud. Imagine the excellence of the advertising required to get our most intelligent people in 2017 to believe it. Imagine the organisation required in the publishing industry to fail to mention Aboriginal agriculture, science and diplomacy. Don't blame Pauline Hanson. Don't blame Jeff Blaney and Keith Winshuttle. Blame Manning Clark, Gough Whitlam and every editor of Meandrin and Overland for they too were guilty of that omission. What a mission. Well, let's look at what the explorers reported of the Aboriginal agricultural economy and see if you can remember any priest, parent or professor alluding to it. Lieutenant Gray in his 1839 exploration of parts of Western Australia so far unseen by Europeans saw yam gardens over five kilometres wide and extending a distance past the horizon further than he could see, simply because they had been so deeply tilled he could not walk across them. Sir Thomas Mitchell, in the country that is now the Queensland-New South Wales border area, rode through nine miles of stooped grain that his fellows describe as being like an English field of harvest. Isn't that word stook? an interesting word when applied to what we thought we knew about Aboriginal history. Isaac Beatty saw the hillsides of Melbourne were terraced in the process of yam production and that the tilth of the soil was so light you could run your fingers through it. Mitchell saw these yam fields stretching as far as he could see near Garryward in the Grampians. He extolled the beauty of these plains assuming that God had made them so that he could discover them not once thinking how peculiar it was for the best soil in the country to have almost no trees. This was a managed field of harvest. George Augustus Robinson saw women stretched across these same fields of horticulture in the process of harvesting the tubers. Charles Sturt had his life saved in central Australia when he came upon people who were harvesting a river valley and supplied him with water from their well, roast duck and cake. Both Mitchell and Sturt described the baked goods as the lightest and sweetest they had ever tasted. How many historians have read those comments and yet not one has considered that it would be in the nation's commercial and culinary interests to find out the particular grasses from which those flowers were made. How many thought that it would be interesting for our children to learn at school. E.M. Kerr noticed that. As he brought the first vehicle into the plains south of Echuca, his cartwheels turned up bushels of tubers. Once again, some of Australia's best soils were almost bereft of trees. The plains having been horticulturally altered to provide permanent harvests of tubers. Unlike Mitchell's self-indulgent congratulations, Kerr was aware 
who had produced this productivity and later recognised that it was his sheep that destroyed it. James Kirby is one of the first two Europeans in the country of the Wadi Wadi near Swan Hill. They pass gigantic mounds of bulrushes, kumbungi, stacked up and steaming and wonder about the vast enterprise but never think about the productivity of that plant. Aboriginal people were harvesting the base of the stem as a delicious salad vegetable and making mounds of the leaves to process starch. Just one more source of baking flour. Kirby notices a man fishing on a weir his fellows had built across the river. Well, Kirby assumes with great reluctance that blacks had built it, but only because he knows he's the first white man to see them. The construction of the dam included small apertures at the bottom so that water and fish movements could be controlled. Kirby describes the operation. A black would sit near the opening and just behind him, a rough stick about 10 feet long was stuck in the ground with the thick end down. To the thin end of this rod was attached a line with a noose at the other end. A wooden peg was fixed under the water at the opening to the fence to which this noose was caught. And when the fish made a dart to go through the opening, he was caught by the gills. His force undid the loop from the peg and the spring of the stick threw the fish over the head of the black, who would then in a most lazy manner reach back his hand, undo the fish and set the loop again around the peg. The man refuses to look at Kirby, even though he knows Kirby is watching. Already the Wadi Wadi have decided correspondence with Europeans is not to their advantage. But this man can't hide his pride in the technique. You could say his manner was insouciant. But how does Kirby explain the operation? He writes, I've often heard of the indolence of the blacks and soon came to the conclusion after watching a black fellow fish in such a lazy way that what I had heard was perfectly true. So weirs and constructions, machinery and productivity all rendered by Kirby as laziness. Wasn't he describing an operation which would fit neatly into any description of European inventiveness and industry.